Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Riley Snyder, filling in for Nevada Independent Editor John Ralston, who is in Las Vegas. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Each week we will discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We are a nonprofit news site that can be found at nevadaindependent.com. I'm joined tonight by another Carson City reporter, Michelle Rindels. Our other reporter, Megan Messerly, has moved back to Vegas and abandoned us, so it's just us this week. Michelle, welcome. Thank you, Riley. It's good to be here. All right, well, let's start off with what happened this week, Michelle. Um, so not a lot of legislative news, right? There's um, been a lot of bill signings, a lot of bill vetoes. What's kind of been going on in the last couple of days? Well, we've been... Uh keeping close track of what bills the Governor Sandoval has been signing and vetoing, and every night we've been having a story on that. Um, we're still waiting for a couple major bills, some of them we know are going to get signed, like the pharma bill that Megan uh, typically describes on this podcast. And uh, we're also looking at the net metering bills being signed, the rooftop mm-hmm. solar that uh, people have been waiting for for maybe a, a year or so. Um, and, uh, and they're going to have the funds to uh, build the UNR engineering building. These are all things that are scheduled. Um, but we've got a couple waiting in the wings that we don't know if he's going to sign or veto. Um, you asked about one of those bills today, right? This bill, the, the little thing we like to call sprinkle care. There is a bill. Um, some people view it as a Medicaid for all bill. It's actually not quite that, but it's allowing insurers to create a Medicaid-like plan, and um, it would have some intersection with uh, with real Medicaid, and it would be on the exchange, and um, so there's a lot of uh, interesting questions that are going on. Governor Sandoval says he's been putting a lot of time into trying to research this bill. Um, he's been talking to everybody up to the, um, the uh, administrator of the CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, to try to figure out how is this going to affect um, affect things, because that's obviously a federal program, um, and the state is trying to kind of piggyback on that in some respect. So uh, this has been getting a lot of national uh, attention, actually. Um, the governor says he uh, needs to be comfortable with it. He needs to have a few more conversations about it. But... Uh, Hopefully we will know in the next two days. Um, we're, we're also waiting on a bill, uh, AB 206, the um, bill that would implement a higher renewable portfolio standard, and listeners of the podcast should be familiar with that one. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, the chances there, what you've been hearing related to that bill. Yeah, so if you have missed the last like six episodes and haven't heard me talk about this for 15 minutes at a time, this bill would raise the renewable production standards for energy in the state up to 40% by 2030. Um, its chances are not so hot. Um, one of the governor's top uh, economic development officials, Steve Hill, was working on this bill during the session, and there were kind of like two alternate paths laid out. One was to raise the RPS pretty significantly. Um, which is the proposal they ended up doing, raising it to 40% by 2030. Its current goal is 25% by 2025. The other proposal was to change kind of the planning process that utilities go through. It was proposed by the Nevada Resort Association. It was kind of shot down. And my understanding was that was kind of where the governor's office felt more comfortable. They have a lot of questions about what's going to happen with energy deregulation. So I've asked him, you've asked him. He said he's taking his time. Um, 
you said earlier that they have until he has until Friday at midnight to make the decisions under Nevada's constitution. Um, the governor has 10 days after the adjournment of the legislature, excluding Sundays, to take action on a bill. Otherwise, it automatically becomes law. So he could do nothing that could become law, or he could issue a veto sometime between. We're recording this on a Wednesday, so in the next two days or so. Interestingly, when I asked him about this bill again today, and you asked him yesterday, so we've been bugging him quite a bit on this, um, he noted that you know you shouldn't just look at this bill. You should look at other things. Um, he note he noted the um, net metering bill that's uh, scheduled to be signed. He noted uh, investment in large scale solar and some other bills. So I found that to be um, a, a little bit telling. Maybe he's tempering expectations um, on that bill while still not being public about what he's going to do on it. Yeah, and there are you know there's like twenty or so energy bills that ended up getting passed and signed by the governor this session. They were going to have a huge impact. I watched. Because this is how exciting my life is, the PUC's morning meeting, and they actually raised the annual mill rate, which is like a, a charge they assess on everyone's uh, electricity bill, about five cents more for every electric customer to pay for more staff to try and deal with all these different bills and all these new requirements they have to follow. So your monthly bill is probably going to go up about five cents uh, yeah. to get the PUC some new employees to be doing all this stuff that the legislature wants it to be doing. Yeah. And, and you've talked about that, too, um, that we're entering this world of energy deregulation and it's probably going to actually require more of the state to, to more staff of the state to try to manage this. Yeah. Kind of like the favorite talking point is that it's not really energy deregulation. It's like more regulation because you need the state to look at all these different retail energy suppliers, um, to be making sure people aren't getting screwed out and have to pay, you know, obscene amounts of money to, to connect to make sure that their power stays on if their uh, existing retail provider goes out of business. So there's a lot of questions and like a lot of work that the PUC will have to do between now and 2023 if that does end up passing in 2018. And Riley, for our viewers like you that just really love PUC meetings, um, you discovered something new today about that. What did I discover new about that? The, uh, the live streaming. Oh, without we knew about that. Oh, you're right, you're right. But yeah, to the PUC's <laughs> credit, um, this time last year when all of this drama around net metering was going on, there was, if I remember correctly, an audio live stream that had a, like a cap of 50 people who could listen, which made it really difficult because everyone was freaking out about net metering, so you had to kind of just like keep refreshing and hoping to get on. So now they live stream all their meetings. Um, everything is publicly available on their website. It's a very helpful resource. I believe that they hired a public... A relations person sometime in the last year or two so they've been a lot more accessible and a lot easier to follow. I was actually thinking of the other public body now that you bring it up that got also live streaming. Yes for uh, people who have problems sleeping um, you can now go and watch every meeting of the Board of Examiners and the Board of Finance. These are the the boards that are led by the governor and other constitutional officers that make decisions on approving leases and contracts, um, different uh, the Board of Finance deals with like state money, what's going on with our investments, things of that nature. The live stream did go up from uh, 10 viewers to 19 when I tweeted about it. So <laughs> Shows the power of Riley's Twitter yeah. influence. Uh, yeah, so that's exciting. You know, more, more transparency is always a good thing. And, um, you know, the Board of Examiners, you're going to find out how many new highway patrol cars are being purchased. Um, sometimes you're going to find out about the new state park. Uh, so there's a lot of business that goes on in those meetings that mm -hmm. can be kind of interesting for our listeners. Mm -hmm.
One story we did work on last weekend before the, the last podcast came out was we went back and we looked. We did this as soon as the session ended was uh, to look at all of the bills that Governor Sandoval had kind of proposed or brought up during the state of the state and kind of ranked them on um, what had happened with them. What we did on Sunday, you and I, was uh, to go back and look at what the Democrats proposed. They have this document called the Nevada Blueprint where they kind of listed out like a lot of policy priorities. A lot of them were kind of vaguely worded, but a lot of them dealt with specific bills. And what was kind of the, the result of looking back at that? Well, I think you ran the numbers and found that there were 160 bills that were considered um, blueprint bills. So these were the ones that were behind this glossy brochure of the Democrats laying out their priorities. They, ha they actually were proud that they had bills behind every one of these goals. Um, so there were more than 160 of these. Uh, the analysis uh, we ran was that uh, more than 85 of them were signed into law by Sandoval, so more than half. Um, there were another 20 on his desk as of about a week ago. Um, some of those have been signed since. And uh, 14 of their priority bills were actually vetoed by the governor. And another 30 just never even made it out of the Democratic-controlled House. Mm -hmm. um, so we found some interesting... Um, results to, to some of these. Um, you know, one of the big priorities was send the uh, marijuana tax revenue towards the schools. Um, obviously, that changed. Um, well, kind of in like a roundabout way, but we don't need to, don't need to get into that. <laughs> Probably hashed it out in a previous podcast. Yeah. Um, things like uh, making financial literacy a part of students' curriculum. Um, there were some bills on that that passed. Uh, obviously, the energy bills that you've been talking about here, there, there were multiple energy bills that were, were part of their goals. Um, and everything down to um, adding more funding to the UNLV Medical School. And that was something like on the last day they were able to put an extra $25 million towards that. And a private donor came through and put in another $25 million. So um, there you go, another blueprint uh, priority they got fulfilled on the final mm -hmm. days of the legislative session. I think to their credit, the one blueprint line, and again, we went through this eight page glossy, or I think it's eight or 12 page glossy uh, brochure that they put out in February. And I think there was only one that didn't have a bill attached to it. It was some back to school sales tax holiday. And unless I missed it in some hearing or some amendment that never got brought up, but everything else got brought up. Um, it was interesting to me that we had 14 vetoes in that article. And I don't know if it's Totally up to date because he's issued a few more veto messages this week. But of the like 35, 36, 37 vetoes he's issued, about half of them were Democratic blueprint bills. So it was kind of, you know, they weren't going to find real consensus there or, you know, it was just they couldn't come there. But it was interesting that so many of their priorities were just things that Sandoval, who like no one has been accused of being like a firebrand conservative, uh, just wasn't able to sign or get on board with. Yeah, and I talked to to the governor about the v sheer number of vetoes because we're up well into the upper 30s now uh, in terms of number of vetoes. Um, and, and his statement is, you know, it shouldn't be surprising that in a Democrat-controlled legislature you're going to see a Republican governor turn down a lot of these ideas. Um, and he was emphasizing that he was clear about what his boundaries were at the beginning of the session. Um, I think maybe there were more of a chance that some of there might be some sort of agreement and the boundaries might change. Um, and that didn't happen in, in at least 14 of these cases. So. Mm -hmm. But he did sign a lot of uh, bills that passed on party lines. Uh, there were a few, one was ban the box. It made Nevada, mm -hmm. I think, 
I don't remember the number, but we're one of the few states that have uh, essentially gotten rid of the requirement that employers can screen uh, prospective employees based on their criminal history. It's There's exemptions for certain um, uh, positions. There's uh, They can bring it up at like the final employment offer. But that was one that passed, I think, on straight party lines, and he ended up signing. Yeah, that one was a little bit um, surprising uh, because of it not getting a lot of Republican support throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also saw the opposite is some bills that seem to have more Republican support and the governor was not on board with them. Um, the one that comes to mind is the private prison quote-unquote ban. Um, it would make it by mid, uh, I think it was 2021, Yeah. Um, five years out, that the state could not use private prisons. Um, and, you know, even in the assembly, I think the vote was something like 33 to 5. Um, and, and the Department of Corrections was really working with um, Danielle Monroe Moreno, the assemblywoman who sponsored this bill, uh, to amend it to make it something that presumably they could live with. And then the governor um, chose to veto that. And he said he didn't want to tie the hands of the Department of Corrections should they encounter the population surge um, or should efforts to kind of curb the population really not be successful. Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting one, too, because it initially right like banned private prison use, which on its face makes sense because we don't have any private prisons in Nevada. So we're banning something that's not here. But they run into a problem because, as, as you've written about many times, um, the Department of Corrections has this overpopulation problem. And a lot of times they'll send uh, these like excess prisoners, I guess, to out-of-state private facilities because they just don't have anywhere else to put them. They have a lot of we wrote about this as well, um, like delayed maintenance and repairs to some of their facilities that need to just get done or else you end up, I think it's like, what are they at, like 150 or 160% capacity? More than that. I think they said 183% is what they usually run at, which means um, if you were at 100%, that would mean everyone has their own room. And um, 183 means, you know, quite a few, almost all of the cells are double bunked and you can't just double bunk everybody. You've got certain people with health conditions or that are on um, disciplinary segregation uh, or have some other reason, maybe a gang affiliation that they can't be with a, a roommate. So, um, so the prison, you know, they're saying they're at crisis level of crowding and they need kind of this relief valve of being able to use private prisons uh, to manage their population. Um, and as, as we've mentioned in the past, you know, the Democrats chose not to budget as much as the um, Department of Corrections was asking. Mm-hmm. And what did uh, Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson say? If uh, you want more, you know, facilities, come here and support a tax increase. Yeah, he said maybe there's someone that would be interested in uh, raising taxes to pay for this. Obviously a jab at the Republicans on the committee. So. Yeah. Um, another thing that you worked on just kind of in the, the wrap-up to session, and we're talking a lot about kind of what happened two weeks ago, but just so many things happened in the last two weeks, it takes a long time to kind of digest what exactly happened, was sort of this post-mortem on what had happened to education policy. Um, clearly, compared to 2015, when you and I were both here, um, education, K-12 through education, played just a huge role in what they were trying to, to do to focus on. That's what, that was kind of the entire focus of the $1.1 billion tax increase. It wasn't as big or as prevalent of an issue, but still a lot of changes were made uh, this session. So what did you find in looking back at what had happened with those bills? Um, Well, yeah, like you're saying, we didn't find kind of maybe the the seismic shakeup uh, that you saw in 2015, where just 
tens of millions of dollars and in dozens of programs, um, new programs. But you did see a lot of refining. You saw a lot of renewing of existing programs. Um, one that comes to mind that got signed yesterday, you know, there was a big push to, um, to try to fight bullying and um, there was kind of a refining of that in a bill that passed yesterday by uh, Senator David Parks. Um, it kind of changes some of the terms about how, how do you investigate a school bullying incident? What if it's so bad that you have to bring law enforcement in? How do you do that? Um, and we've also seen things with, say, the social workers in schools program, which has been really well received. You get a social worker to try to work with kids on their emotional issues. Um, but those social workers were basically contract positions. They didn't know if they were going to get their contract renewed next year. They could just have no job. So um, one of the things the legislature did was uh, give the option that those folks would be full-time employees. Um, we focused a lot, obviously, on the ESA uh, versus Opportunity Scholarship Program, mm -hmm. which maybe we can also talk about because we did a, an explainer on the differences uh, between that. Um, one of the things that was a significant change in education was the step towards the weighted funding formula, which has been a goal of the state for several years now, um, but there's just never been enough money to allocate an extra allotment of money to every child with some sort of a special need. Um, this time they started that process by putting $72 million, which is going to be divvied up among probably 30,000 students and help schools afford um, maybe a reading center or an interventionist to help kids. Mm -hmm. um, and for people who don't remember, like what kind of students are getting um, this extra weighted funding? So uh, right now, what this money is targeted toward the 72 million is kids that are English learners or uh, free and reduced lunch and have low performance. They're in the lowest 25% academically. Um, so those kids are going to be able to get an extra $1,200 is going to follow them around to whatever school they're at. Um, that's another thing that the legislature took a step towards is, uh, you know, we talk about kids who are low income and need free and reduced lunch. We use that metric to say, oh, they need extra money, they need extra academic investment. And that's not always true. Not every child who comes from a lower income family is struggling academically. And some students that are from a middle class family um, may have those struggles. So uh, the legislature took steps. Um, they're going to do another study to try to refine that so that we're not just using free and reduced lunch. It's like a broad as a, brush. Yeah, right? as this proxy for, um, for a student being at risk. We're going to hone more into where's a student who has academic needs and how do we identify them and how do we put the money towards that child? Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about the ESA versus Opportunity Scholarship thing. For those who don't remember the last couple of episodes, um, ESAs or Education Savings Accounts is this quasi-voucher program that got approved in 2015. Its funding mechanism was declared unconstitutional in the interim and then this session coming in, the governor and Republicans made it a big priority to fund it. Basically, it creates an account for parents to apply of any income, parents of any income, and get about $5,400, $5,100 um, to use for any educational expenses. So that could be tuition, that could be transportation, it could be anything like that. The The deal to kind of bring ESAs back fell apart in the last week of the legislature. It ended up not passing. But what did pass was this $20 million increase in the Opportunity Scholarship Program that's slightly different. That has a 
an income uh, cap. So if your parents make more than 300% of the federal poverty level. Which is about ballpark 75,000. Yeah, it depends on the number of children and all of that. Family of four, yeah. Um, so that passed, that was $20 million. Um, it's funded by tax credits, so it's not necessarily state dollars that are going to it. There's kind of like an, a somewhat indirect way because it's tax money the state wouldn't have gotten otherwise. But Republicans have called it basically a worthwhile compromise, I think is the words that uh, Governor Sandoval used. Um, because they say this is more of a school voucher program. This is direct uh, dollars going to pay for tuition for schools. So there's been a lot of Republicans who said, actually, you know, we got Democrats to vote for vouchers. School choices advanced. We kind of won this session, whereas Democrats were heralding the death of ESAs as like their big victory for the session. So we we looked at the two programs and kind of how, how did it work out? Are opportunities scholarships vouchers? Are Republicans right? Are Democrats um, correct in, in saying that we, you know, we stopped ESAs and we save public education this session? I think in its purest form, a voucher is public money going directly towards a, to a private school, kind of like in this direct transfer. And um, my understanding is that really neither of these programs fully fit that definition. If you have an ESA, uh, you have the parent, you have the money flowing into account. The parent is kind of the next step and the parent gets to direct where it goes. Um, they are the one consciously making a decision to send it to the private school. It's not the state. Um, so ESA folks are very sensitive. Don't call it a voucher. Call it an ESA. It's a, it's a, it's a step removed from a voucher. The opportunity scholarship is, uh, is not directly public money um, because it is a donation a business makes in exchange for a tax credit. Um, so it's a little bit different than a straight transfer from the general fund. But the state is paying the private school. Um, actually, it's, it, they, they work it through a scholarship organization, but that scholarship organization is directly paying the tuition of this child at the and private school. And these are school. sort of like nonprofits that take in the applications from parents, kind of vet them, send reporting mm -hmm. back to the state. But it's not the, like there's no State Department of Education who's like taking in applications. It's all kind of done through this nonprofit mm -hmm. process. There's right? four state nonprofits that kind of administer these programs and, you know, presumably do the outreach and do the um, application vetting. Um, and then they're responsible for accepting the donation, actually uh, supplying that money to the uh, private school. But you, you're right, there's, um, <laughs> there's kind of this political battle of semantics around this um, and, and who gets to declare victory over this. Um, the governor, as you mentioned, is, is really positive on this program. In fact, this was his program. Um, it was brought forward and, and passed the legislature in the 2015 session before ESAs were even a thing. Um, ESAs didn't get attention until the very end of the of last session. And this passed out like mid-session, right? So this it was kind was of done earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and this was, you know, a lot of fanfare um, for this program. He went to this beautiful historic school in Virginia City to sign this bill. So it was a real big thing. And the, and the ESAs were kind of a late coming um, issue that kind of burst onto the scene towards the end, but then of course overshadowed this program and no one ever talks about the opportunity scholarships. It's always this fight over the ESAs. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was interesting what you tweeted today um, between the CCEA and the NSEA and their take on, on the opportunity scholarships ESA uh, battle. So maybe you can 
tell folks about that? Sure. So there's been like ongoing tension between the CCEA, which is the Teachers Union for Clark County, and the NSEA, which is the state's teachers union. And they're affiliates of each other. They are affiliates of each other. So the CCEA pays dues to the NSEA. They have very different um, leadership and management styles. They kind of had different ideas going into the session. The CCEA was just operating under the assumption that ESAs are going to pass. So they worked a lot more with Republicans. They endorsed several of them during the 2016 campaign. The NSEA ran ads, did everything they could to stop ESAs from happening. They were probably the biggest winner of the session because they had one goal and they got that goal done, don't fund ESAs. Um, so the CCEA, they put out this legislative review today and I, I tweeted, a, a, an interesting tweet as you call it, um, screenshotting what they said about their relationship with the NSEA in addition to giving them a vote of no confidence. They said that, you know, we're, we're kind of perplexed why you guys are celebrating this. You added $20 million extra to this program. That is more like a voucher that you've called a voucher before. Um, this is something, and again, in, in 2015 when this passed, it did happen in the middle of the session, but it didn't pass with any Democrats in support. Mm -hmm. This time, I believe every Senate Democrat voted for it, and then all but nine of the Democrats in the Assembly voted for it. So it was clearly like a last-minute compromise measure. It was one of those things you just kind of have to... To, to vote for, you can like kind of see the political leanings in it, but just the the change in support on the Democratic side on that I thought was interesting. And you know, there's a whole other story we can do on the CCEA and John Villardita versus uh, the NSEA and this like inner teachers union drama. But you know, they they even in in the teacher union world, there's a division of opinion on this. Yeah, they have um, extremely different approaches. Um, the CCEA has seemed to align a lot with some Republicans and kind of some Republican-backed concepts, and the NSCA is more of this purist, um, has been aligning exclusively with the Democrats on a lot of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's that's a story for, for another day. Yeah, perhaps the next <laughs> podcast. Perhaps the next podcast. Uh, before we wrap up, let's talk about a non-legislative thing that you went to on uh, Tuesday. I'm getting the days of the week mixed up, but this hearing... Um, on this lawsuit about marijuana that the liquor distributors brought up. So right now I think the plan that the state has is to launch recreational marijuana sales on July 1st. It's kind of everyone's assumption. There's like a lot of tax revenue at stake for this program to get started. Then a little wrinkle happened when this, uh, this injunction was filed. So can you kind of give the, the background and then what happened this week? Yeah, so um, they're uh, written in question two, which is the ballot measure that legalized recreational marijuana. Uh, there's a little portion that says the people that do the distribution work for marijuana, which means transferring it from a cultivation facility to a retail store, they have to be liquor license holders. Um, there was a caveat written to this measure, and that was that if the department were to determine that there are an insufficient number of liquor distributors to make a fully functioning system, then they could um, open it up to marijuana providers, uh, to marijuana businesses. The liquor distributors, um, when they caught wind of this and caught wind that the uh, department was presuming there was an insufficient number and going to allow all um, businesses, including the marijuana distributors, to apply, um, they uh, started fighting against it. They recently uh, filed a lawsuit the state um, or a court granted them a temporary restraining order. So the Department of Taxation cannot give out distribution licenses right now, um, even though it was a May 31st deadline. Um, 
So we're in the middle of this court battle. I went to the latest hearing in which the Department of Taxation um, wants to throw out uh, the the lawsuit from the liquor distributors and just get the, the show on the road. Um, the liquor distributors say if, if this process goes through as written in the regulations that were just adopted, they're going to be um, marijuana companies are going to come in. They're going to vertically integrate. They're going to basically be their own distributors. They're not going to need the liquor folks. And the liquor folks are just never going to have another opportunity again to get into this supply chain. Um, so they're really pushing to get the regulations changed um, or just, you know, somehow get a judge to order something so that um, they secure this place that they believe um, question two rightfully gives them, um, gives them this really exclusive spot in the supply chain doesn't allow marijuana distributors in. So anyways, we're going to have another hearing on Monday. Uh, maybe then we will know uh, it, what which way this thing is going and whether the state is going to be able to get recreational marijuana sales going by July 1st. As you mentioned, it's important for the state budget, which is, um, you know, depending on approximately $64 million in revenue, um, from a 10% excise tax on on recreational marijuana, but also a lot of these businesses that have invested a lot of money um, with the hopes of getting into the larger, more lucrative recreational market and getting out of kind of the, the niche uh, medical marijuana market. Um, they want to get going. They want to recoup their investments as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. It's also important for all of our listeners who are marijuana enthusiasts <laughs> themselves and just want to, you know, legally buy their drug of choice on July 1st. As uh, one of my Twitter followers said, don't ruin my 4th of July party. Oh. So. <laughs> one thing maybe you can help explain that I think uh, took me a little while to understand was the whole thing on question two, the ballot question to legalize recreational marijuana was we want to regulate marijuana like alcohol, right? That was kind of the whole premise of it. And so that's the argument that liquor distributors are bringing, but maybe you can explain why is it an issue? Why do they say it's a bad thing for marijuana companies to vertically integrate? What's wrong with having a company, you know, grow their own, deliver it, and then sell it out the door? They want it to be how the, the current system for liquor is, right? Liquor distributors, I mean, obviously it's a business opportunity for them. They, they want to get in on this. Um, but their argument is is that, hey, you know, you sold this to the voters as we're going to regulate marijuana like alcohol. Now, alcohol has a very distinctive regulation model. Um, dates back to prohibition. Uh, when they brought back liquor, uh, they said, we're going to have it so tightly regulated that there cannot be these, um, you know, cartels, um, just kind of they need to monitor the black market. Um, so what they did is created a three-tier system, very uh, rigidly regulated. So you have um, wholesalers. They can never be the same person that is a retailer. Um, so you can't have a bar owner, basically, also be a wholesale person and, and sell to themselves. It's just a very thick wall between these three different tiers. Um, so they want to introduce this into marijuana. They said, you, you, you campaigned on this. Um, now, the thing is, the medical marijuana industry is not divided into three sharply defined tiers. Um, so basically, uh, you know, you could argue that, hey, we're doing it in, and medical marijuana is doing just fine. There's not this huge, horrible, um, scary thing that's happening because uh, we don't have a three-tier system in marijuana. We're responsible. We're not in prohibition anymore. 
Um, and, and people have sometimes described this as, oh, you know, you're just being anti-competitive or, or trying to, you know, get this government <laughs> protected spot in the supply chain. So, And it was an issue this session too, right? Specifically the liquor distribution because everyone loves craft beer now. And unfortunately, craft breweries run into a lot of these rules about how much you can produce and sell on premise. Um, they raised the production limits. I think it was 40,000 barrels, but they can't sell 40,000 barrels at their facility. They have to distribute it to a separate wholesaler. It's a different company. Um, but yeah, it's interesting like just how as times change and we have these like regulatory models that were set in place in the 30s or 40s, how things kind of change and, and adapt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, craft beer model is produce the beer on site and sell it at your restaurant that's attached to the brewery. Um, but that is just not something that's contemplated by the original three-tier model. I mean, that would just be kind of sacri or, you know, sacrilege <laughs> um, to, to have someone sell what they're making. And, and of course, this has been etched away a little bit over the years. Now we have craft breweries that, that do things, everything on site. But it's, it's always a little bit of a battle, as we saw this um, legislative session, because of the three-tier system has been there for 70 years. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to kind of slowly... Uh, change things about that. Okay. Uh, I think that's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, you prefer the two-person podcast model without Megan, uh, let us know at ideas at theenvyindie.com. And please check out our site if you haven't already, the nevadaindependent.com. Please go search for us or for iTunes or your favorite podcast store and rate us and subscribe too. I want to thank Michelle for being here tonight. A special thanks to our producer, Joey Lovato. I'm Riley Snyder. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. What is this guy? All right, so uh, Michelle has our off-brand Roomba that was just purchased today. <laughs> uh since uh, Megan is gone, we're filling the void with objects like this robot. So here it is, the Quest 700. And it even has a side brush and it's currently spinning. I know you can't see that. <laughs> Teddy. Oh. oh no. What's going on? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, even in that four feet, it's cleaned more than Megan did in the last six months. Oh, man, guys. <laughs> well, I think it's dead. I don't oh. know what happened, but that's our Roomba. Welcome to the new member.